Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of Titus in the final chapter, chapter 3. Titus, chapter 3, as we continue in our series, Saving Grace, Changing Grace. And uh, happy post-Valentine's Day to all of you ladies. How many of you got rose? No, don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass your husbands. Uh, maybe you got, uh, anybody getting forget-me-nots? Do you like forget-me-nots? Do you know what forget-me-nots are? There they are. They are, uh, they are symbols of love and remembrance, okay? That's what a forget-me-not is. That's why it's called. But actually, uh, the way it got its name, or the myth, so goes the myth, God was creating everything in the world and naming everything as he created it, except for the animals, which, of course, Adam named those. And he, he named all of the flowers, thought he'd, all, he'd got them all done. As he turned his back to leave, one little flower yelled out, Lord, forget me not. To which God then turned and said, by this, everyone will remember your name. Okay, so that's probably not true, but <laughs> neither is this, but it reminds me of the, um, of the story of the, of the three sisters that were living together. They were all widows, uh, their husbands all being gone. They moved into a house. They were old, 96, 94, and 92. And uh, the 96-year-old was, up, was upstairs and getting ready, was getting ready to take a bath, and she put one foot in the bathtub, and she stood up and she said, Girls, was I getting in the tub or getting out of the tub? Well, the 94-year-old goes, oh, you silly thing. I'll be up there to help you. And so she started going up the steps. And halfway up the steps, she stops. And she looks back. She goes, honey, was I going up the steps or coming down the steps? And the 92-year-old sitting at the kitchen table said, oh, you silly women, you. I hope I'm not like you when I'm your age. I'll be right up after I answer the door. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, being forgetful can be humorous. But there's nothing humorous when we cease to remind ourselves, if indeed we are followers of Christ, of the mercy and grace of God in our lives. And when we do, when we cease to remind ourselves constantly of God's mercy and his grace, then a kind of involuntary memory loss occurs, and we forget. And if that's you, and I'm, I'm thinking it probably is some of you, You're on dangerous ground, and I can prove it to you. The great Lutheran martyr of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said, Satan doesn't fill us with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. I would argue that no genuine Christian who has fallen into some sin uh, sets out to defy God. That just doesn't happen. Defection takes time. And usually it's because we just keep forgetting who we are, whose we are, why he saved us, why he has kept us here on terra firma to glorify him. In fact, 
when Peter writes about it, he starts stacking all these truths. He says, he says, if you have been divinely converted, then you need to add to your faith. And he starts listing all these characters that ought to be characteristics that ought to be added into our lives through the process of sanctification. And then he comes up with these striking, stunning, almost haunting words when he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Have you ever read that? Haunting words indeed. The theme of remembering is replete throughout the Bible. Remember God. Remember his help. Remember his power. Remember his promises. Remember his history in in your life. After all, history is his story, right? The psalmist, Psalm 111 and verse 4, put it like this. God has made his wonderful works to be remembered. And so God has called us to remember. The Old Testament uses words to sort of enhance our remembering. Uh, Words like ponder and study and delight. The Jews would literally reenact the great Passover, which we're going to get to here in the weeks to come as we come close to Easter. They reenact it to this present hour, at least the meal, as a form of remembering. And we do so with the greater Passover every time we celebrate the Lord's table. After all, Jesus said, do this in what? Remembrance of me, right? If I remind you, I'm referring to something. Now listen to this. If I remind you, I am referring to something that has already happened or something you already know, not something new. I never remind you of something new. That doesn't even make sense, does it? And while preaching is heralding, we saw that in the very first message, chapter 1 and verse 3, that, that they, these individuals, uh, Titus and company, had come to Christ through the heralding of the message, the preaching of the word. It doesn't just come from pulpits, but we're heralding the message every time we witness for Jesus, every time we tell somebody about Jesus. We are heralding the message of truth. And while preaching is heralding, more than that, it is reminding. Preaching is reminding, is it not? More, almost more often than anything, it's reminding you of truths, rich, theological, deep, and, and, and even shallow. Truths that you already know, but you need to be reminded of so as not to what? Forget. I have the joy of heralding from this pulpit on a normal basis. New truth to those who are not saved and those who are newly saved. I get to herald not just from this pulpit, but in small groups. I work with two different groups of individuals, a cell group full of brand new Christians, and an individual group of men, uh, 10 to to 20 of them every, every week, a number of them not Christians. And you can't put a price tag on the face of discovery. When somebody, when the lights come on, and they see something for the first time. Whether it's somebody coming to Christ or somebody who's just come to Christ and they're learning something for the first time. But we actually spend more time, especially with the newer Christians, we actually spend more time reminding them of truths that they've already bought into, already believe, already in the system, so to speak. We have to keep reminding in the Bible 
affirms that over and over again. And the reason is because we're, we default to become forgetters. Do you agree with that? C.S. Lewis, in one of his chronicles, The Silver Chair, depicts Aslan, who is the, you know, he's the lion figure, who is the, you know, he's the figure for Jesus. Aslan is speaking to a gal whose name is Jill. Jill is the cousin of the four, of the four kids that you're more used to in the earlier parts of the series. And he's sending Jill back to Narnia to find the lost prince. And he says to Jill, you need to remember these things and keep reminding yourself of this because, and then he says, the air is thick down there. And so Lewis was trying to convey to the children and to you and I that our, the air in which we breathe, figuratively speaking, is thick. Lives, life and all of its vicissitudes that we encounter thicken our minds and we forget basic things so we have to constantly be reminded. God knows that. And so here in Titus in these first eight verses, he's gonna give us three forget-me-nots, okay? That's how we're gonna try to remember this today. Three forget-me-nots. And here's the first one. Forget not your politic. That seems like a good one for this <laughs> time in which we're living. Forget not your politic. Look at verse 1 and 2. Remind, there's the word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So forget not your politic. Remember the background to the book. This is Paul. He's writing to Titus. He's dropped him off. He's plopped him down on the little island of Crete where there were as many as 100 churches. He was setting up leadership in all these churches. And, and the Cretans were a proud, kind of a rebellious people. They sort of had a low-grade temperature toward Rome. They sort of hated Rome. They just didn't want to say it too loud. You know, didn't want to get the head lopped off. But for some reason, they didn't like government. Imagine that. Our current atmosphere right now is acidic, acrimony, volatile, toxic. And we're talking about politics. Both sides, it doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a liberal or a moderate or somewhere in the continuum, there's so much vitriolic hatred being hurled back and forth. Would you agree? Nobody listens to anybody. And here's what Paul wants the Christian Cretans to know. As he said to the Philippians, he wants to remind you, your citizenship is in heaven. The word citizenship, I underlined it on purpose because that's the only time that word ever, ever occurs in the Bible. And the, we get our English word politic from this word. Yep, politics, it's in the Bible. There it is. Our politic is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word citizenship or politic here, it, it, it conveys the idea in which you live, the way you conduct your life in this world under whatever government you happen to be. We happen to be here in the States, and most of us are U.S. citizens, and most of us are probably proud to be so. There are still remnants of Christianity in our society, albeit few, 
And that's why many of you have heard me say that if you're a true Christian, Christians are just heavenly citizens holding earthly visas. And that's a good way to look at your life. Your true citizenship, your true politic, your true residence forever is heaven. And you need to remember that. As such, you're expected to obey the rules as you live in the other country. And by the way, like it or not, this is the other country. If you're a Christian, you could argue that we have a dual citizenship. But God doesn't say that. He says your citizenship is in heaven. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you obey the rules? Well, he lays out some of them right here. Speak evil of no one. How, how's that going for you? The Cretans, it wasn't going well for them. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're watching Fox News or CNN or one of the other ones. I mean, they're all hurling, you know, just slime bags at one another, cursing. This is not what the Christian's supposed to be doing. You're not to forget your politic. He says avoid quarreling. The, the word means not fighter. That's what it means, not fighter. Now, you've got to balance this because Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, Fight the, the what? The good fight of faith. And then when he writes Timothy again, just before he dies, he says, I, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I've finished the race. So there is a good fight. So by implication, this must mean there is a bad fight. And let me just tell you this. Political arguments are usually bad fights. They just are. I'm not saying there isn't a time for them. I'm not saying there aren't issues that we have to deal with. And, and, and some of them, you know, we, you know we, the, the tenor gets pretty, pretty hard. But most political fights are really wasted times. Uh, we were, a, a group of us leaders in the Engage Network were together one day, and, and we were interviewing a, a young man, good guy, loved the Lord, loved the gospel, seemed sharp. But yet we were all kind of wondering at the same time a little bit about him. And one of the guys, wasn't me, one of our guys had the, had the thoughtfulness to pull up his phone and just dial up the dude's name on one of the social media platforms and found all kinds of political comments made. And right, it's like, eh, you're done. I mean, I'm just because, I mean, his, his focus wasn't gospel-centered. His focus wasn't on his true eternal politic, but it was on the lesser one. The word gentle is up here in verse 2. Did you see that after quarreling, being gentle? That's a really cool word. It's not, the, it's not the word that's used in other places where you see gentle. It's the word used a handful of times. It, it, it's translated in James 3.17 where James is talking about wisdom from beneath and wisdom from above. You probably read that. He says the wisdom from above is, here's one of them, willing to yield. Really cool statement. That's the word here. So when he says gentle, he's talking about willing to yield. One translator translates the word sweet reasonableness. This is the guy who doesn't have to have his way. Okay? I had a friend years ago who was so unwavering on everything, it made it hard to have a discussion with him or a debate with him on anything. And what the scripture is saying here is, don't be that guy. <laughs> don't be that guy. 
Show perfect courtesy. What a great translation that is in the ESV. That's just rendering one word, the word meekness. You know, that strength that you have that's controlled. Here's the point as we move on. Don't forget your higher politic. Your citizenship is in heaven. Remember that and act like you're going there. That might be a good idea too, by the way. So forget not your politic. Secondly, forget not your past. Just one verse, the third one. For we ourselves were, now he's reflecting back, this is a reminder, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a wonderful way to live. And that's exactly where some of you were. Some of you are there. We were once foolish. <clears throat> By the way, <clears throat> the word foolish conveys the idea of shutting your brain off. It means to not think. That's what it means, not to think. So there's another word in the New Testament where, it, where we, get, we get our word moron. A moron is just a person who doesn't think. This means you shut your brain off. And let me tell you something. There are two people who will shut their brain off, all, at, and I mean every time. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. In fact, I've seen some of the most intelligent people I've ever met shut their brain off when it comes to substance, substance addictions like alcohol and drug abuse. And the other is sexual addictions or living adulterous or immoral lives. Both of those individuals will do two things. They'll shut their brain off, and they'll lie to you every time. Every time. So if you're struck, why? Because he says you, you're slaves. You see it? You're slaves. You know what a slave is? To various passions and pleasures. They are at your beck and call. And some of you are still slaves here. This is, the only thing that's going to free you from that is the gospel. And for those of you like me who've been delivered from this kind of slavery, and I have been there, I praise God for his grace. And he's saying, forget not your past. What's the purpose of, what's the purpose of verse 3? Why would he put this in there? Why is he calling us to not forget our past? Because when you do, when you, this is why you ought to be sharing Christ. It doesn't matter if you are a, you know, if it's a gift of yours, evangelism is a gift or not. It doesn't matter. You should always be sharing your, your story, your testimony, because it will cause a welling of gratitude to well up in you. Because you remember the way you were, what God delivered you from. Amen? You say, well, I was saved when I was four. I don't care. You got a past. Your parents got saved, some, or, or, or your grandparents. I mean, I'm a third-generation Christian. I don't care if you're a 10th generation Christian. You got a past. And give glory to God for extracting you from that past. You're bringing to you the gospel. And when you do that, you well up with gratitude. We just sang one of John, you know, really, John Newton's most famous of all hymns, Amazing Grace, a different version of it, mind you. But that man who led a slave uh, ship at one time was wonderfully converted, wrote the words to Amazing Grace, helped to end slavery, working with the government there. He had etched in stone, or not in stone, but in a, on a wooden you know, slab on his mantle, these words that he looked at every single day 
from Deuteronomy 15, 15, which read, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Christian, if indeed you are, forget not your past. And finally, forget not your privilege. These are the last verses in this, verses four through eight. Forget not your privilege. And what he's going to talk about to you and me is this, he's, going to, he's, he's in a, a passage that I'm about to read that some of you have memorized, you've yanked it out of its context, and you've quoted it to others, and really rightly so. It's, it is a powerful passage of Scripture talking about God's great salvation, his redemptive uh, powers. You've experienced the washing. You've experienced the regeneration. You've experienced justification. All of those doctrines are here in the text I'm about to read. But here's the point. Paul's point to Titus is that if you've experienced these things, if you've experienced the love of God, if you've experienced the kindness of God, then extend it to those who have not. And let you, let you yourself become the conduit of that kindness. So let's look at it, verses four through eight. This is where we conclude today, four through eight. But, but, there's the adversative, okay, but when the goodness and loving kindness, that's gonna be a key phrase there, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And all God's people said, not because of works done by us in righteousness, that didn't save us, but according to his own mercy, that's what saved us. By the washing of regeneration, that's what saved us. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's what saved us. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now you see what he's trying to do here, I hope. He starts out with that adversive. It's in there a couple of times, but, verse four. But, you know, in spite of what I was, but the goodness and loving kindness of God came into my life. But is a beautiful word, isn't it? The plane went down, but everyone survived. Your son has cancer, but we've caught it early enough. We believe we can extract it. Their marriage is in shambles, but we believe that through good counsel, they'll reconcile and get on with things. The apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, you who were once dead in your trespasses and sins, you were children of wrath, held by the prince of the power of the air. But God, but God who's rich, but God who's rich in mercy by grace, you've been saved. That's a big, <laughs> that sounds funny. I was going to say that's a big but. That doesn't sound really good, does it? <laughs> I'm reminded, I'm reminded just now, I'm reminded, my friend Dave Heischerkamp tells, this wasn't even my, the guy, hey, it's a third service. Um, and uh, so um, my friend Dave Heiskamp was listening to a missionary speak, and she was doing a tremendous job. This was up in Pennsylvania several years ago. 
And she was talking about all the excuses that people have for not going into missions. And she was, and she was, he said she was compelling. She goes, I know you, you feel like you ought to go in, God's leading you to go to missions, but you want to get married. You want to go into missions, but you have little children. You want to go into missions, but your dad has, has sort of groomed you for this job. And she went through all of these buts throughout her message. And he said, I, we were convicted. She says, let's all pray. And we all bowed our heads when we were praying. And she says, I have just one question for you. How big is your butt? <laughs> the whole message went right down the drain right there. The entire student body was heaving in laughter. Well, let's see if I can survive this message. How's that? So he's saying in spite of what you were, if indeed you were, some of you still are, but God who is rich in mercy and his loving kindness. You see that phrase? This is a really cool phrase. It's, it's the Greek word uh, philanthropia. And I say that to you because I just love to sling Greek words around, you know, just to impress you a little bit. No, I, I only do that when you find a connection to an English word. You can hear it. Philanthropia. Can you hear philanthropic? Can you hear philanthropy? That's a person who loves to do good for someone else, right? This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's when Paul shipwrecked on the island of Malta. You know, the whole boat's coming apart. The whole, everybody survives. They're like wet rats coming up on the island. And all, all those from Malta, not Christians, showed philanthropia to Paul. They showed kindness. It's that common grace of God that's kind of in everybody. And, but here's the point. Paul is saying, you've experienced this loving kindness from me, that is from God, now show it to somebody else. They need to hear it, they need to see it, they need to experience it. It's the same compassion that Jesus had in Matthew 9 when it says, and seeing the multitudes, he had what? He had compassion. If you notice in verse eight, he's concluding by saying that we ought to dedicate ourselves to good works. Here's the point. Paul's desire was that these Christians on Crete remember what God's kindness had done for them and to extend it. That philanthropia, extend it to those who need his love and mercy. Again, the point is that God saw us, God saw you, lost, blind, hellbound, and in desperate need of compassion. And he reached down to you now he's saying, you look at them. You look at those outsiders in the same way. They're lost, they're blind, they're hopeless. They need compassion. And that's gonna come if you yourself have a strong sense of the mercy and grace of God in your own life, right? That's the point. Now verse five says, he saved us, which is a cool statement. But the ESV and most of the modern translations do not translate this, I don't think, properly. The, even the old King James got it right. The new King James did too. The word not is in the front of the sentence here. And so if you memorize it like this, you memorized it right. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, right? But according to his mercy, he saved us. So he's trying to drive home the point that they're not gonna get saved by works of righteousness, any more than you got saved through works of righteousness, okay? 
but by the mercy, verse 5, and the grace, verse 7, of God. And mercy is just God withholding what you and I deserve, which is judgment, damnation, and forever and hell. You know that that's what you deserve, right? That's what the Bible teaches. That's mercy, that God withholds that. Grace is God giving to you and me what we don't deserve. His love, his favor, his kindness, and his salvation when we place our faith in his son. He's telling us to extend the same thing to others. And, he, and, and remember your privilege. Remember your privilege. You didn't get saved by good works. That's not going to save them either. And notice he says, by the washing of regeneration. That's a great statement. We love that statement. Regeneration means new birth, and, you know, you must be born again, right? So he's referring to that. And I'll come back to washing, but what about washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we just quote that, and we don't even give any. What does that mean, renewing of the Holy Spirit? Well, we like the idea of the Holy Spirit in salvation, That makes sense. We can see that in other parts of the New Testament, his work, his regenerative work. He's the one who wakes us up, makes the light come on. But what does it mean to be, what is the renewing of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? When you read renewing, think, ready for it? Think renovation, okay? Because that's what the word means, renovation. Now, how many of you have seen the HGTV series, Fixer Upper? Let me see your hands, okay? Lots of you'd seen, yeah, I mean, you can't take your, the irresistible Chip and Joanna, you gotta see them. They're such a wonderful couple, you know, and they, they take these homes from these people who buy them at a lower cost, and they, they renovate the home. And you have the big reveal at the end, right? At the end, you know, you got this giant-sized portrait of the old home split in the middle, and are you ready, you know, for your fixer-upper? And they pull it back, and Wow, it's a new home, or is it? I mean, it's new. I mean, that thing is different, like crazy different. Same structure, however. But make no mistake, it's, it's new. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change in your life, both in salvation and throughout your life. He doesn't just save us. He keeps conforming us so that even the good works that we do are produced by God himself. And listen carefully to this. At salvation, you, at salvation, we still have the same body. And all God's people said, shucks. Anyway, okay, I mean, at salvation, we still have the same structure. We still have the same body. But make no mistake, mistake you are a different person, amen? You're a different person. And it's done, brought to you by the washing of regeneration. Now, what does this mean, washing? There are some people that actually believe this means baptism. But if baptism brings about regeneration, we can check the rest of the New Testament. It cannot possibly mean that. It does mean to take a bath. It does mean some full infusion. But this has to do with an internal washing. That's where, that's where the real dirt is. How many of you are concerned about this coronavirus? I see a show of hands, huh? Two people. Yeah, okay, let's just stick our hands in the heads in the sand. 
80 or 90,000 people at last low count. A couple of thousand are dead. Many more will die. One of the, uh, one of the great concerns about this virus, as with SARS before it and other pathogens that became pandemic, is the asymptomatic carrier. Do you know what the asymptomatic carrier is? Uh, the A negates the word. So symptomatic means you got the fever, you got the cough, you got all that stuff that is connected directly to the pathogen, the virus that will make you very sick or kill you. But asymptomatic carriers have the virus, but they don't show any symptoms. And so when they talk, when they cough, when they sneeze, they're spreading that everywhere and nobody knows it. That's a real concern. And as I was looking at this recently, I thought of what had happened about 120 years ago, give or take a few years. Her name was Mary Mallon. She was an Irish immigrant that came from Ireland to uh, New York City. And she worked in several wealthy homes. She was a carrier of the typhoid pa uh, pathogen. But she was asymptomatic. She had no symptoms. And so she worked for a wealthy New Yorker and everybody in his family got sick. And then she went to another one and everyone, almost everyone in that family got sick. A baby dies. And then to another. And she started seeing, she worked for restaurants and people were getting sick. And she started seeing sort of the writing on the wall. Couldn't quite figure out why that was, but she just went and got another job. They finally caught up with her. And they said, can we, you know, we get some of your bodily fluids? No. Why? I mean, could you blame her? It's 1907 or something like that. I mean, what? I'm not sick. Why would you do that? No. She kicked one guy right out of her house. Eventually, they isolated her. And while in isolation, they said, let us take your gallbladder out because we think that's where the, passage, the pathogen resides. Take the gallbladder out, we'll take the disease out, and you can go on and live in a normal life. She said, no. They actually let her go again. They said, just don't be a cook, be a launderer. Well, guess what? Launderers don't make a lot of money. So after a while, she took on an alias and became a cook again. And people started getting sick, and people started dying. They eventually caught up with Mary and put her back into isolation. She refused to have her gallbladder removed. And she died in isolation. They did an autopsy on her. And sure enough, they pulled the gallbladder out, and there was the typhoid pathogen that had killed and made so many sick. The tabloids nicknamed her, didn't they? Typhoid Mary. The problem was within. Some of you here this morning are sick. You just don't realize it. You're asymptomatic. In fact, you're a good person. You're a good mom. You're a good dad. You're a good worker. You're a hard worker, even. You're clean. You're moral. You don't take drugs. You're not sleeping around. but you're still sinful within. 
your life has never really changed. You're just a moralist. You're asymptomatic. But the pathogen is within. It needs to be removed, and the only way it can be removed is through the gospel, through the good news that Christ died and rose again for you, and his blood will remove the evil pathogen from you. But some of you are just going to continue to say, no, that's not me, and you're going to refuse, and you're going to go into eternity, and there you will remember forever all of the refusals in this life to acknowledge your pride to set it aside, and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need the washing of regeneration. When Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, the rich man was a fool, rejected God, went to hell. This amazing dialogue takes place between the man in hell, suffering immensely, as he talks to Abraham across the chasm, begging for him to bring some relief. The first two words out of Abraham's mouth to that man who had refused the remedy were these. Son, remember. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look into this passage of Scripture and be reminded that we must forget not our politic, our citizenship, our true citizenship, those of us who know Jesus, is heaven. Let that govern us in our lives here on earth. We've been reminded to forget not our past because that helps us, Lord, to show the contrast between those who don't know Jesus and those who do, and it causes the welling up of gratitude in our own lives. And to forget not our privilege, if indeed we know you, that we have experienced the joy of justification, the cleansing of the washing of regeneration, and the renewing, the renovating power of the Spirit of God change our hearts from the inside out. And we remember and thank you for our memories. I pray for those who've allowed themselves to forget and it's reflected in their lives that today they would turn back to you. And I pray for those in this room, Lord, who are good people but they're asymptomatic. They're the, the evil, the pathogen of sin is still there and they have not humbled themselves to repent and turn to Jesus. I fear for them, Lord, that they'll go into an eternity always remembering, but not for joy. If that's you, dear friend, turn to Jesus and be saved. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.